0: Welcome to Belkin's Growth Podcast, hosted by Michael Maximoff, co-founder and managing partner at Belkin's. Today's guest is Sean Ellis, entrepreneur, investor, the author of Hacking Growth Book, and simply, Growth Hacker by his nature. Sean helped to bring five companies to market that went on to exceed billion-dollar valuations, including Dropbox, Logmein, Eventbrite, Uproar, and Lookout, in addition to launching and selling two businesses as founder, Qualaroo and GrowthHackers.com. Michael and Sean speak about growth hacking, share tips and best tools, as well as discuss Sean's unique experience in building businesses and scaling products. Enjoy listening, and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.
1: I wanted to talk with you about growth hacking and about growth in general, but Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of you actually growing your business, go practice because, so you've been with this project, you've been around for like 15 months now?
0: Yeah, I mean, we really only launched it Kind of with the with both of us being involved uh, for about a month and a half, two months, something like that. So oh, just two months. Where yeah, pretty pretty recently. I mean, Go Practice has been around. Yeah, uh, you know, he launched it in the Russian market probably three years ago, mm-hmm. and then about a year, a little over a year ago, launched it in the U.S. and wasn't growing that fast. But then right. then that's when he. He and I connected, and I saw what he was doing, and thought it was really cool. And so then, then we came together, and, and basically, I thought they needed to do some things to to make it a little more accessible in at least in the U.S., but probably in the the rest of the world, the English speaking world. And um, so that's why we we spent almost a year kind of rebuilding it, and then and then relaunched it in uh, you know September.
1: What is Go Practice Now?
0: what attracted me to it was just this idea that it's all of my growth learning has really happened through experience. You know, you, you start out, you know, nothing, you try some things, you learn what works, you learn what doesn't work and, and you continue to add skills as you do. And so um, that's the problem when I look at most kind of learning courses is that it's just, you know, it's just theory and you're not putting that theory into practice. So go practice as a simulator, is kind of like as a, as a flight simulator, you're, you're, you're learning to fly a plane before you actually you know, risk your own life and other people's lives flying the plane. In this case, you're actually learning to grow a company while you're growing a virtual company inside of GoPractice. So you're, you're basically running queries to figure out what's happening. You're making decisions based on those queries so it's built on top of Amplitude, real data in Amplitude. And you have a advisor built into it who's helping you overcome some of the challenges. And then on a weekly basis, we meet and connect and discuss the content and, and go deeper into the content and answer questions. But it's, uh, it's just a really effective way to learn growth at the end of the day. But I, I think it's also a very unique way to learn growth and probably the only real effective way to learn growth because I just I just don't think you know. Th- th- Generally, teach it. Maybe maybe you can learn a skill through kind of theoretical courses. Like you you can get smarter about a channel or smarter about how to run tests. But but ultimately, it's it's through doing that you get good. at yeah,
1: a lot of a lot of variables. So it's like uh, this uh, Star, Ta- Star Trek uh, simulator, Kaburashi Maru or something, right? That yeah, he, he was on. Um, there are a lot of variables, right? When you start your startup and uh, there's no like any theoretical course that can help you to build the company. I was just speaking the other day with 20 years experience, chief financial officer, and he mentioned about like 50% uh, growth profit for the marketing agency. I was like, I'm not at 50% these days, right? Even though I'm profitable, we are growing this and all of that. And when they read the book or the best practices or about you know how to build a startup or something, they throw the numbers, right? But those numbers are actually like just numbers for that unique case, right? And only right. when you go through that yourself and you create like a sort of like a, a monster that is breathing, walking, growing, but it's a different monster than all the other company monsters that were built. Who are ideal customers for growth practice? Is it like um, students, entrepreneurs that are starting? Have you- yeah,
0: so, so it's kind of interesting. My background really started in marketing, and so I think when Oleg originally built it, he he was thinking sort of, you know, he was, he was building it for like what he wished he had for himself. So he was he was basically thinking, okay, his background was product management and and data analysis, and so he was thinking, okay, data analysts and product managers are going to be the ones who get the most out of this, you know, growth oriented data analysts and product managers. Obviously, when I looked at it, I thought um, every marketer should be taking this. Right, And so I think what it turns out is that the to be effective with data today, to be effective with product management today, to be effective with marketing today, you actually need to be pretty cross-disciplined in your skill set that it's not just about, okay, I'm going to, like a lot of people think I'm just going to build a brand or build some awareness. It just doesn't work yeah. anymore without... Without an experience to complement that, and so you know, you need to to, to build a brand today is not just about showing someone 800 advertisements and then your brand is going to stick. People see thousands and thousands of advertisements every single day but they only have maybe one or two new product experiences per week. And and most of the time, those product experiences lead to nothing. They they experience it once and they say, what the hell was that? And they never come back. But the truth is that you can actually build a brand through those experiences if you really curate that experience and you, you think through every element of that experience and you study the data and you realize in that experience, what do people need to do so that they wanna come back and experience it again and, and that it delivers on the benefit or the promise that people are looking for or solves the problem that people are trying to solve. And so I think just the idea that marketers can live in their silo and be effective is just a very old way of thinking. And, and the same thing on product. If, if product is thinking, I'm just gonna build a great product and people will figure it out, that, that doesn't work either. That you have, to, you have to think contextually, where is the user coming from? what's their first impression how do you bring them deeper into experience where you ultimately build a habit where they it's, it becomes a, a an ingrained part of their life that they can't uh, break and so yeah you can still be in the product discipline mm-hmm. and but but i think that, that you need to have at least some level of marketing and data to be effective at it and mm-hmm. and the same thing you can still be in the marketing discipline but you have to think deeper and you're not just Building an impression, you're, you're driving behavior, and then uh, as an analyst, if you're just about the data and not understanding how the data leads to real value delivered to customers, you're not going to be a very good analyst. So I think that's the the, the interesting thing with Go Practice is that mm-hmm. it actually it takes all three personas and and helps them be more effective in their roles. So I hate the answer because you always want to have a very specific customer in mind when you build something, right. but Just when I study who loves it, I'm seeing I'm seeing pockets from from each one of those groups. And I think that's the reason is that all three groups benefit from it because it is a well-rounded course that kind of teaches all three disciplines.
1: Got it. Okay. well, you do have you know, you have immense value here. Uh, You you understand who should benefit from this. However, I mean, you guys are selling the product, and if you're selling the product, you should sort of like set up the strategy for it. So, for example, if it's like a b two b strategy or it's direct consumer strategy, that's the way you mm-hmm. utilize the marketing channels. So yep. where are you at right now? Is it more business to business you're you you know selling it as plans or packages for the teams or it's like i would
0: a- I would love to say we're only doing one it's it's really more responsive to what the inbound is right now. I sold we have uh, a, a company with dozens of seats mm-hmm. in in Romania that okay. just just recently signed on so you know even if i was thinking b 2 b where's the big opportunities i would be thinking kind of you know fortune 500 kind of companies mm-hmm. um, and we have those as well but um but I, I think the majority of the people are just individuals who want to up level their skill set so it's mm-hmm. it is both b2 b and direct to consumer but i i think that's actually a trend that i've i've seen across companies like Dropbox and LogMeIn and, and a number of companies over the years that I've worked at is that you build your direct-to-consumer customer acquisition engine. And as you do that, you have deeper opportunities that come in through that engine. And then to really harvest those opportunities, you need a a way of being able to, okay, this is, this is the hook into a much deeper opportunity. How do I, yeah, everything from how do I, Set up the the demo. Who are the stakeholders? What's the what's the process that I drive a a multi seat big m- much bigger deal through the pipeline? And so I wouldn't say that we've got it down perfectly, but I, I would definitely say that we we are seeing a lot of multi seat B two B opportunities that are that are coming in, and we've got a pretty good close rate on those. But at the same time, it's the the individuals are are usually the ones who are who are driving the purchase decision for for the majority of transactions mm-hmm. and uh, and so yeah i mean i just i think that's again the reality of um, you know siloed thinking internally when you're growing a business and then also you know just a specific engine of of acquisition the kind of consumerization of b2b is a is a trend that's going to continue to roll for i, I think just because End users are looking to solve their own problems, and when they're effective, they become your advocates. Often in a, in a larger B two B opportunity.
1: That's so true. And while you do that, you you know you create a subsequent product or just develop the product uh, like extra features, extra benefits for those B two B customers, like productizing, exactly. so right? That's, and that's yeah. where you will start making making some margins because I know that you know sometimes when you do like direct consumer, right, and you start rolling it out, you need to always, you know. Your acquisition covers the sort of like, I need three, four months or six months of that client paying me so that I can cover my acquisition of that customer, right? Yeah, so, I think like if that, you're
0: doing a recurring business, we we have a um, we just have a single a transaction. Thing. Yeah,
1: it's like yeah, months so months.
0: so it's uh, those customers are either profitable or not from day one, and and that's and yeah. they're that's they're, a different thing. Yeah, since exactly. we're not spending to acquire the customers, they're profitable from day one for us.
1: And uh, you're acquiring most of the customer right now using leveraging your own brand, right? And yeah, I mean definitely to
0: to a large degree, um, you know whether it's kind of all my all my podcast episodes are are yeah, sponsored by the book. the book definitely has has created a good footprint out there. And then you know, ultimately, so it, when it launched in Russia, Oleg had a very similar um, you know had a, had a much broader reputation in Russia that he could leverage and then you know ultimately I think that's the other thing that you see with good products today is that if it's good then your customers become your most important growth engine and so that was you know 7000 people have taken this course now and it, and oh. it's really it's really be, you know most of that has happened through word of mouth so you want to be really aggressive about you know, acquiring that first person in the chain, but then, but then you also want to make sure. So, so for example, um, I'll like just recently, we have, we have one person on the team who's really managing a lot of the community and 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 marketing. Uh, you know, just program management of the marketing, and she's constantly encouraging me to do more more things to build pipeline and bring more people in. But there's a trade-off for me where I can do those things or I can make sure that, you know, this is the first time that we have a cohort going through the program where we actually have those weekly meetings. And so I could really work to make sure those weekly meetings are super high quality. And how how do I take the lesson of this week and convey it in the best way and, and collaborating with Oleg on that? Or do I just... Really quickly try to do it good enough, and then spend a lot more effort and time driving new people into the funnel. I I always err on the side of I would rather grow more slowly but with better quality than grow really fast, but but basically that um, you know people aren't happy with it, and you know in the long run you're going to grow a lot slower if you're if you're not focused on just you know quality of a, of an awesome experience and and mm-hmm. something that really delivers on the promise. So. That's the that's a bit of the trade off that I'm I'm doing right now is that I actually investing less into customers acquisition and more into making sure that the product really delivers on what people want from it.
1: Right, because obviously because of your brand, you have a momentum of acquiring more customers, right? But if mm-hmm. the product is not uh, growing or improving the way you guys you know want it to improve, right, then you will lose this momentum at some point, and then you will yeah. have problem with acquisition. However, if the product can be strong all yeah. the all the way, then you can be growing all the time and just consistently leveraging the brand and adding more and more layers of it. So yeah, every
0: fast growing company I've been a part of, from you know Dropbox to log me in to Eventbrite, all of those businesses, ultimately word of mouth is the dominant channel. And that only happens if the product is really, really good at what people need the product for.
1: So right now you are wearing shoes of entrepreneur basically you have a platform you have a product you have a young team you have just basically you know seven thousand customers and comparing to the to the volume of customers you want to be at uh, in the next five years, I think it's nothing for you right it's just the very start
0: the way I look at it I'm just putting it in the context uh-huh. of like kind of the the big picture for me you know I spent ten years as a or not eight or nine years as a as a Founder CEO and then a lot more years as the as the head of growth and marketing for a lot of companies. I having something be the biggest it could possibly be and making me the richest I could possibly be is not actually what drives me at this point. I, you know, um, being healthy, being a good dad, being a good husband, being happy, those things are also really important for me. And so I would say what I love about Go Practice compared to my last ventures that were VC backed is that we don't have to push the envelope to maximize the size of the the company against the opportunity. What I really love about Go Practice is that Oleg is the CEO. Oleg manages the team, and I sit really outside of the organization and and really just a um, a partner that is taking taking a percentage off the top line of revenue. So. Your profitability and all of those things is really based on, you know, he pays the team, he manages the team. And so for me, I look at it more as, as something that's really good passive income. I made more off of Go Practice this past month than I did as a full time CEO at Growth Hackers in four months. And it was not my full time. I also, you know, and, and that accounted for less of my income than other things in this past month. So right. I have. Workshops, I have keynotes that are all paid. So I have a really good engine that is interdependent. The more keynotes that I do around the world, the more workshops I do around the world, the better Go Practice does. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it all feeds off of each other. But right. it's, you know, to me, I really love the independence that it gives me of not having to, to have a team. So um, I can. I can live anywhere I want right now, you know, I mean, right. Except for the pandemic that that maybe prevents some travel, but I'm really setting myself up. So my, my younger daughter just left for college this year. Mm -hmm. And so I'm setting myself up for, you know, I want to be able to work and live anywhere in the world for any period of time and have, have an income and really enjoy what I'm doing and, and, uh, you know, and, and make a lot of positive impact on people. Yeah. And so, so I think from that perspective that go practice fits really well into everything that I want to do. And so, um, so you already and I really spend, like Oleg and the team.
1: <laughs> you already spent your years working around the clock and, you know, getting that massive projects done. Right. Um, yeah, so I mean,
0: I've, and then the other thing to just look at is that, um, you know, when you're, when you're on the ground floor, when I joined Dropbox, there were less than 10 people there. It, yeah, you know, it it's reached at, at times it's been well north of a ten billion dollar valuation. It's it's a little lower than that right now, despite beating earnings estimates every yeah. every quarter as far as the eye can see. So valuations are kind of weird on on the the fickleness of of yeah. public yeah. markets. But you know, I've I've had really good exits already. So I just there you know when I read uh, four hour work week, I don't know if you're you're familiar with. Tim Ferriss' book The 4-Hour Workweek. It sounded to me like I, I avoided reading it for a long time because it sounded like the lazy guy's guide to life and I didn't want to read that. But I you know, I there was one lesson in that book that really stood out to me and and I ended up really liking it was which was define the lifestyle that you want to live, define define what um, you know, what income you need to support that life and 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 then Figure out the easiest path to that versus the especially in America, but but in lots of places around the world, it's whatever I have, I want more, I want more, right. I want more, and yep. and that's that's really a path to unhappiness. That um, I don't want to be on that rat race. So so for me for me my my earnings are probably as high as they've ever been, but it's not about those earnings. I'm, I'm well above what I need to, for the life that I want to live. So that's why, that's why just, you know, chasing more money on it. It's not, it's not that I'm lazy or fading into the sunset. It's just that I think I've, I've reached a perspective where if I had a billion dollars today, I would not live any differently than I live right now. So why work my ass off for a billion (laughs) dollars?
1: I respect your opinion, although I think that this is what people think when they have a successful exit from Dropbox, right? When you get to the point when you made yourself a living, you made yourself a career, a name, and that satisfaction that I built some projects that are really impactful, right? Now I can change my lifestyle. And obviously, based on the transition period of your life when you change the lifestyles. And mm-hmm. if this lifestyle match your your needs and, and you know it's better, then it's perfect. Have you yeah, for have what, you, what
0: it's worth? I read that book when I was still at Dropbox. So oh, okay. I didn't have the exit from Dropbox. Oh, okay. Um, but I was already I was already shaping shaping my life around that idea of you know, learning and reputation have always been my drivers. And when I focus on learning and reputation. I tend to earn a lot more money than when I focus on money.
1: that's so true. that's that's very true. And being opportunistic about the the quality, the the value that you can create and not the money that you can make is is better, right? Because on the long mm-hmm. term, it gives you more sustainable growth and and the success and happiness. By the way, uh, have you been to Moscow uh, visiting Oleg and the team? They in Moscow. Uh, right? So
0: Oleg is actually based in London. My wife is in Moscow right now. Um, She's Russian, and so um, I can't go to. She she wanted me to come to Russia with her, but I I can't right now because of the pandemic. Have you been to Russia? I have been. Yeah. I in fact I lived in my. I met my wife in uh, Budapest, Hungary. I lived in Budapest for seven years, and we started two of the unicorns I worked on. Out of Budapest, Hungary. Budapest. So yeah, so we started Uproar.com. Uh, it was at one point the biggest game company, or biggest game online game company in the world. And then we started LogMeIn out of Budapest as well.
1: Oh, so you you were the part of the LogMeIn story when?
0: Yeah, so I was I was with LogMeIn for four and a half years, uh, wow. and from customer zero through the NASDAQ IPO filing, I led marketing there.
1: So you've you've had your time in Eastern Europe, and
0: yeah, was- no, it was a perfect why- time. I- Yeah. I first, I first went to Hungary in 1987. So as a, as a high school student with my family traveling around Europe, and then I studied in 1992 in Budapest for a year. And that's what, that's when I really got hooked on kind of all of the post-communist economic changes and just the excitement of, you know, democracies being introduced and wanted to move back and do that. So that as soon as I graduated from college, I moved back and, uh, yeah, you know, ended up, uh, ended up 1995 was when we, when we started uproar.com. It sort of turned out to be 1995 was a really good time to start an internet company, as you can yeah. imagine. And, uh, so I, I, I invested every cent I had at the time into the company. And, um, and that was the first of the companies i worked on that reached the billion dollar valuation. So when you invest everything you have right out of college into uh into a, like i mean at the time it was worth less than a million dollars that was a great run up um i didn't i didn't completely exit before the dot com meltdown of 2000 but i was able to exit enough that i think I, again i think it it gave me the flexibility in my career where i think one of the challenges i see a lot of people having is that they're so anxious about living the lifestyle that they that they essentially spend right to the limit of what they have and when you do that you have to settle and take some, some not so great opportunities because you are addicted to a lifestyle. And, and, and then you, you just, you can't really break that where for me, yeah, I could be really patient in picking what my next opportunity was because I had that financial cushion and could live below my means. And so in marketing and growth success, 90% 90% of the success is picking the right market and and team and so you know being patient and waiting for those right opportunities is is a big part of what what led to the upside versus if I had to jump on the first opportunity because I had bills to pay that's that's uh
1: yeah.
0: that's a recipe for for you know not having as much success
1: have your experience uh, living in eastern europe and you know being um you know leaving everywhere in a bunch of different places and abroad and traveling, have it reshaped you as a person or as an entrepreneur, considering the fact that you've probably built most of your projects or like global projects that are addressing mm-hmm. the needs of, you know, internationally, not for the specific market, um, have, have that had any impact on you as a, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, compare that with if I'm like, you know, trying to build a, product for domestic market only. I'm not that sort of like into traveling. I didn't live in Budapest for like four or five years. Have yeah. have that had any impact on you? So
0: fortunately, I think, I just did an interview for, for my podcast with uh, someone who's running growth at uh, Klarna. I don't know if you're familiar with Klarna, but biggest fintech company in Europe. So mm-hmm. over a $10 billion value, biggest private fintech company in Europe. So over a $10 billion valuation, but they started out of Sweden and so there's no way you're going to grow a fintech company to a 10 billion dollar valuation serving the swedish market it's just it's too small it's you know less than 10 million people i think it's like 5 million people and so from day 1 if you grow up in a country like that you have to you have to think global markets the fact is that in america you can think us market and you can build a massive company for the us market and so i don't think i mean interestingly when we were, when I worked on Dropbox and Me in in neither of those companies did we, were we really focused on international markets, but because the internet is the way that the internet is, those companies went global before we even thought about them going global. And so I remember pretty early on with in we started talking about, maybe we should think about international. And then when re- we really dug into our user base, it already is Super international, and then the same thing with Dropbox. That um, I uh, within within the first year of joining Dropbox, within the first year of it, it being publicly available, I was in Japan and um, spe- speaking to a bunch of investors in Japan. Just just as kind of like a, a trip there, um, you know, sort of a a fun professional trip, but not one that was like revenue generating or associated with Dropbox, but. When you speak to a group there, they always want to know what companies have you worked on. So, of course, I, I I talked about the companies that I worked on that listed on NASDAQ, thinking those right. are the ones that people are going to be familiar with. And crickets in the room when I mentioned them. And and so then I'm like, and I'm also working on this project called Dropbox. And I, I assume nobody would know what that was. And they were like, "Wow, Dropbox!" And the, yeah, suddenly, suddenly, like Dropbox was the 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 like this great thing in Japan where we never once targeted the Japanese market. We didn't do anything to grow in Japan. But because I said we were, we were so word of mouth driven, I mean, there was some virality in the product as well. But even more important for growth than file sharing and folder sharing was just people who love the product telling other people about it. And you don't control growth. When that happens, you just Try to you know point growth in the right direction and and keep it going, but it yet you, you have to kind of let it take care of itself and and somehow you, it reached Japan and and became really popular in Japan.
1: How do you point growth in the right direction or in any direction when this thing is blowing up? I mean, not like theoretically speaking, but practically speaking. I uh, can you kind of give me an idea of how, how did the meeting go when you and the team are gathering in one room and say, guys, like we are huge in Japan or we had like. 10,000 euros a day or something. How did, how, what was the discussion about Like the forecasting? So, we, so interestingly on on that, I had already, so with, with
0: Dropbox, so, so I'm, I'll give you a little bit more on my history. So the first two companies I worked on, I worked on the companies all the way through NASDAQ listing. So customer zero to, to NASDAQ listing. But I, I realized with both of those companies that the most important contribution I made was in the first 6 months of go to market. So once the product was ready, what were the things we did in the first 6 months that built the growth engine, that pointed us in the right direction? And then the next 4 years were really just executing that engine. And so I thought okay, if that's the most important part in like a 10 year period I've only done it twice. If if I really want to get good at that, I need to do it a lot of times. And so that's where I went into several companies where I only did the first six months. And so Dropbox was only the first six months. So the, by the time I went to Japan, I'd already stopped my engagement. So there, I didn't go back and have a big discussion. Oh, we're big in Japan. How do we take care of this? At LogMeIn, I did have a lot of those conversations. And even at Dropbox, you know, the first month that we were at Dropbox, we studied where is the usage. So that for, first, I joined... With uh, the the public release, so as soon as the private beta ended, the same week that it publicly launched at a TechCrunch event was when was when my role started, and I, not surprisingly, the the highest concentration of usage in that first month was the tech the techies, you know, so it was San Francisco and Boston, like the two kind of tech hubs of the United States, and. Then you know, I used to ask the survey question almost every week while I was there to a different group of people that would be on my surveys, which best describes you? I like to be among the first to try cool new technology, or I only try things that I think will be useful for me. And you could see when I first started, it was 80% of the people want to be among the first to try cool new technology, and it's San Francisco and Boston-based. And you could slowly see over those six months when you studied like the usage that it was really it got to the point where the biggest markets were Utah and Nebraska. And so that's like middle America, not the techie hubs, Utah more so than than at least the perception of Nebraska. And then we had flipped it to where eighty percent of the people said that they only try things that they think will be useful for them. So, yeah, part of it is just like studying what's going on. It's it's less necessarily about pointing in the right direction, but you can still see. You know, when it when it's in San Francisco and Boston, you can make something kind of not that easy to use, and people will figure it out. But by the time you get to the less techy areas where people are less about something that's new and exciting and cool, and more about is this thing going to provide value for me? You really have to be focused on making it super easy to use. So we did so much like testing and studying of the funnels, like you know, for people who were coming in and trying to sign up and get started, and then would give up. Really pulling together those lists of emails, emailing them out. What happened? Trying to trying to get feedback from them feed that feedback into making it easier and easier and lots of testing and trying to improve those percentages that that get to the point where they could really use the product. So I think part part of that is what, what just drove it is like, all right, the opportunity is the people who find it. And then capitalizing on the opportunity is making sure those people get really good value. So that was the first six months. And that's why I think I was so surprised with Japan if I was still there in that second six months, I probably would have, I probably would have realized that it had spread to Asia and Europe and all these other places. But I, I you know, I was moving on. I was already working on uh, Lookout, another company that reached the billion dollar valuation, and they they are in the mobile security space. And so I was figuring out that new puzzle. But when I went to Japan, it was just really interesting that you know it had it had spread there. And so I think. I think there may have been a different set of challenges. So I think for for log me in, one of the things we realized when it spread internationally was okay, are there are there some language updates to, that we need to make? Do we want to do we want to make versions of the sites in different languages and how do we do that? And so that you know, I'm not sure if Dropbox did that because I wasn't a part of the organization at that point and a. I wasn't trying to access in Japanese to know if they if they localized or customized, but definitely I remember from from log me in us localizing things to to capitalize on the opportunity.
1: During your those first three months in in any of those organizations, you implemented the the techniques that you wrote in the book, uh, hacking growth. Was that the, the the priority for you? Like those uh, like four or five uh, like tips that you give in the book about. Understanding you, uh, your must-have benefits, determining key yep. growth metrics, and all that—that that was sort of like your job to put that together first, and that would kind of fuel the growth on a long term. Basically, that right. was right. And I wouldn't the- say
0: I, I necessarily had the documented playbook at that point. I mean, we we wrote the book in 2014. We started and then didn't publish it till 2017. So it was like a three-year process, or you know, right. like we we, we st- sort of. Once we had a publisher, it was only like a year, but we we were kind of toying with the book for a couple of years even before that. And so I think to me, the book was really documenting a lot of what I learned during that period. And so at that point, the biggest thing is, yeah, who loves the product? Why do they love the product? So you figure that out from both qualitative, just even conversations with lots of customers, but lots of serving. So when I was at Dropbox, I ran a... Survey for the first three months, I ran probably a survey every single business day. Wow. And so not to the same people. That would be super annoying, but I I said, okay, how many people do we have? You know, in the private beta, they had a lot, you know, so I think it was up over a hundred thousand. So then I and then very quickly it reached a million by the by the back end of my time there. And so that list was growing. So it was really about dividing that list into lots of thousand people lists and every day sending out another survey to a thousand people to figure out what what's going on with them. A question and for you
1: here sure. about the survey. So since you've done a lot of those surveys, uh, what are the the not to do things or the best practices that you've noticed doing those surveys? Like if I am you know growing, I have like 10,000 mm-hmm. or 100,000 users right now, and I'm going to be doing surveys what should I not be doing from the start that you've did? And then you changed that completely because that didn't work, you know, any sort of like. Yeah. So the I mean, I,
0: so one thing is I never do a survey over eight questions. So, um, you know, always, always thinking, what are the eight questions that I want to ask, but also thinking, what's my pool of people to survey and, you know, don't, what i What I say a lot of people do is that they'll they'll run a survey and then they then they they survey their entire group. And I've always found every time I run a survey that it triggers five more questions that I wish I would have asked on the first survey. So it, you can get yourself in a trap. If you run that survey, you ask everybody, then you have to wait another you know month until you have enough people to d- survey again. And so being able to be strategic about it and say okay, i have I have ten thousand people. To get reasonably useful feedback on the survey, I'm gonna probably need to send it out to a thousand people each. So I have 10 surveys I can run. What's my plan? What do I what am I gonna to try to uncover on the first survey through through the 10th survey? And then hopefully by the time I run out of that survey pool, I've already grown a new survey pool that's that's another 10,000 people and, you know, at least, and then, and then you kind of, you never run out of survey pool that way. The other thing I do with surveys is I, I tend to start very open-ended. So Mm. I don't, you know, which that was one of the big benefits when I was only six months with these companies, it wasn't like I could take six months to figure it out. I had to figure it out in one week and then hopefully have you know, five months and three weeks to execute on what i figured out. And, you know, figuring out never stops, but you have to get there quickly. And so what I, by by asking open-ended questions where it's, you know, and I might even do it shorter, if it's open-ended that take longer to fill out, I might only do four questions, but that, you know, once I say, you know, what is the primary benefit that you've received would be an example of a question I'd ask, leaving it open-ended now I have really good information to build a multiple choice survey on my next survey. So these are themes that kept coming up and the top four themes, those are what I want to give in a multiple choice. And then do I want feedback equally from everyone is another question. If if you hate my product, do I want to hear what your best benefit is from the product? That's not nearly as important as hearing it from someone who says, Oh my God, I can't live without this. This is amazing. So, having filtering questions that help me drill into who really loves this product. And, and the question that I use for that is uh, it's, I've become pretty well known for that question, which is, How would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And people who say, I would be very disappointed without the product those that i use that filter to understand a lot about who my core customers are and who do i need to get a lot more of and so um, that's that's really when i say point the product in the right direction it's really you know it starts with don't over target i think that's a mistake that a lot of people make too that they think they have all the answers from the beginning i don't know who's going to love the product so be fairly general initially in that People coming in, and then and then figure out who loves it, and then focus on getting a lot more of those people to the right experience in the product. And so it's the, it's constantly just a learning process that uh, often takes you in a very unexpected direction.
1: All right. When I think you know, about growth and growth hacking, for me, it's sort of like the concept of doing something you know, like a lot of testing, doing it fast, uh, like a lot of experiments and Mm -hmm. a lot of changes, lean thing. So, but at the end of the day about, you know, testing experimentation for people that are experimentators in general, it leads nowhere because you don't have enough data or time to, you know, to collect the data because you always experiment, always test, always AB test. So Mm -hmm. is there any sort of like timeline or the testing or examination? Whenever you implement that kind of growth hacking methodology, right? Uh, should there be a certain period of time that I need to stick to a month, a three month, a six month a sort of like gaps before I made a change? You know, you know what I mean?
0: I mean it's really statistical significance is what you're what you're looking for. And so the best way to think of that is if I If on day one, where I barely have any users, I decide I want to figure out what button color I'm going to test, which is always like the joke of like a test that is not very valuable. If you're Facebook, a button color test is valuable. That level of increment, they can make a decision on a button color really, really fast. And it could actually move the needle on the business. But if you're a brand new company that has a few hundred people a day coming through, it would take you six months to even maybe get close to statistical significance. And that would be such a waste of during that time. So in the early days, you want to do big, radical changes that are, you know, the, the bigger the change that you make, the less people you need to have go and see that change to know if it was effective or not. And so that's why you don't want to make little incremental changes in the beginning. You want to completely reposition and try, you know, like a, a long form landing page versus a really short landing page. A, I get to use the product for for free versus I only have a free trial. Like things that are are going to probably right. be pretty pretty major changes. And the challenge there is that this is the same time when companies do not have a lot of resources to implement experiments. So the temptation is, Build really small experiments because they're easier. But it's you you have to focus not on experiments. You you have to focus on learning and learning that gets you to the the most important kind of growth metrics. You're learning how to grow. But before you learn how to grow, you're learning how to attract one person who absolutely loves the product, Then, then a thousand people who absolutely love the product. And then building an engine on those thousand people. And so it is uh, just like the stages, what you're trying to do at any individual stage is very, you have to kind of zoom in on the individual tests that you're doing, but zoom out in the big picture. What really matters for us right now and what we're trying to learn.
1: Got it. This is great, Sean. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and again, we can after this, we can wrap this up, your book and the methodology and, you know, the timing right now in, in specifically in tech, you know, like we, we don't do marketing right now. We do growth and we do growth hacking, right? Everyone. And I, I, I know I've, uh, when I prepared for this interview, I've, you mentioned that after releasing the book or sometime, you know, years ago, people starts like basically posting thousands of jobs, right? Like with, uh, yeah. you know, growth, growth, specialists. And I'm one of those people that actually is looking or was looking for growth specialists. to be honest with you. And the challenge that I had was that this role wasn't clearly defined, right? Because if I have a marketing head or a marketing specialist, I know what our SMM specialist or like designer or a product person, right? And typically the the reason why I was hiring the growth specialist was that I was, I wanted to have a a, a very small and lean team and big attack, build attack and then sell the attack and and enjoy very high ARR without spending much on the overhead, right? That's this yeah. the the dream, uh, you know, in 2020 for young entrepreneurs, right? Have a team of of five, seven people, and having like one 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 million ARR or two million ARRs, you know, and you know, just leaving leaving your dream, right? So the question that I, the challenge that I had personally was that I wanted to set up a team where I had developers or engineers building this product, I had like a product person and the or product slash customer support person, collecting feedbacks, doing surveys, helping the product developing. And I wanted to have a a growth specialist pushing the product, right? Like go to market, not specifically like leveraging multiple channels, doing not just the strategy, but also implementing the strategy across the Mm -hmm. board. right? Mm -hmm. So the challenge I had, I wasn't able to define the person because of so many Skill sets that that person should have, so the mm-hmm. question for you is, can you recommend me how should my job description look, or what key th- skills or backgrounds should I look at the growth specialists for that person to be successful in the job because I failed miserably looking for that person, so if you can yeah. pointers yeah, i mean i think
0: I think that it, it it's a it is really a challenge of finding finding the right person based on what you can because it's not just skills. It's also grit. It's also, you know, I mean, essentially, it's a really hard job. It's like saying, it's like saying, what's the job description for the best football player on the team that I want to, you know, it's like, they have a set of skills, but they have this like intense desire to win. They're a great teammate. You know, there's like a so many different checkboxes that a lot of times they don't even know they would be great at it until you put them in that role where someone else who seems like they'd be really good. You know the first place where they run into some challenges, they they might just kind of give up and not care that much. And so I do think that people who are really good at growth tend to be very entrepreneurial. So you see a lot of people who are really good at growth then go on to become entrepreneurs and vice and ver- vice versa. So founders and entrepreneurs, um, you know, go go back and forth between that growth role because it's a very similar risk profile that you can. You can be a marketer and marketing is a verb, you know, you could like, as long as I'm doing the marketing, I'm, I'm doing my job, you know, Um, like, of course, if if you're not growing, most marketers are not going to keep their job very long. But when, when growth is in your role, growth is an outcome. And if you, if you're not creating growth, when you're in the growth role, you're going to fail pretty quickly and, and. People are gonna say, get the hell out. So I, I think like for for me, for example, when I look at my early growth roles, I think what was what was probably unique about me, you know, now that I've been a CEO and had other people that I hire, I think what was unique about me was that I was so, I was so like driven to figure out how to grow the business that I could get to the root cause of what was stopping the business from growing, even if that root cause was outside of my area of responsibility. So I remember in this game company that I was working on, we were growing really fast and suddenly we stopped growing and I didn't really do anything that differently. So you could just say, oh, well, I don't know why we stopped growing, but but we stopped growing, you know, like, or you could say, why the hell did we stop growing? This is you know, so then you put your private investigator hat on where it's just like, I got to figure this out. And so for me, it turned out that the, the development team added a new technology to our registration that made the pages load on um, just the registration pages load way slower. And even the core product pages actually load loaded way slower. And for me, when I'm looking at all this other data, I could see something just happened, but no one else in the company could see it. And so then I have to put on the leadership hat and I'm in my my 20s so you know you've got people that have been you know in the workforce for a long time and this 20 year old smart ass kid saying you broke something and you know and I probably didn't have the best uh, the you know most diplomatic way of approaching it with people but but ultimately what it turned out was that I had to go hire a or or you know get reports from a third party auditing system that I could actually show what the download speeds of our overall site were from kind of a period of time. I graphed that against our new customer growth rate, our overall customer growth rate, and essentially put together a pretty good report on what was happening. And first I brought it to our president. And so we were already a public company at this point. And so I brought it to our president and he kind of came from a big, big company background more. And I had already brought it to our head of technology who basically said, no, what you're saying is wrong. And so I brought it to the president and instead of him saying, what's going on here? He said, why can't we get along? You know, And it turned into how do I get along with the head of engineering and technology? Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, I could have given up at that point. I've got my president telling me to be quiet. I've got my head of technology telling me I'm wrong. But, and then our CEO was out doing a roadshow for, for, for a bigger IPO listing. We were already listed on one stock exchange, but we we're going to move to a bigger one. And so that's when I even tightened up the report more, brought more data into it, presented it to him. And that's when he looked at it and he said, oh my God, we're screwed as a business if we don't fix this. Right. And then he had an all hands meeting for the entire company. And he said, what the hell happened? We need to figure it. And it turned out that they you know, then when when he said this, now it turned out they've realized that's, they've added yeah, cold fusion to our registration that completely killed everything. And he's basically, no one's building any product or doing anything till we figure out what the hell went wrong. And then he fixed it. And then we went back on the growth. And then not that much longer later, we became a top 10 website in the world. But a lot of people could have just kind of given up at that point. But it was just my my frustration and just like... I you know, I told you, this is the company that I invested everything I had into at this point, my investment had, had reached, you know, probably a million dollars. And so I'm looking at it, this is going to make it all go away if I can't get this figured out. And so um, So anyway, so then, then so then, you
1: had a personal, uh, you know, personal you were personally invested in the success of this. So, so then, you know, the idea is not just about finding the person, but also when you found the person, you need to motivate that person accordingly, and that might go. I don't with, think
0: it's you need to motivate that person. I think if somebody's not self motivated, then then they're not going to be able to motivate themselves. You're you're not going to be able to convince them to be motivated, and that that's that grit factor. It's like, oh, how do I how do I motivate LeBron James to be, right, Rebron, but, Lebron, you know, it's like, it, he's just wired that way. And so I think part of it is you need to find people who are wired that way. And, you know, that story that I just told, I can, I can tell you over and over again, I ran into the, you know, at logged me in 95% of the people who signed up for our product never once used the product as head of marketing. Is that my problem or is that product's problem? Same CEO in that company. It was a lot of the same people who who went to that company, so it was a little easier for me to just go, "Hey, Mike, this is what the data saying. We're screwed on growing this business if we don't solve this." You know, same thing. Right. Okay, everybody, drop everything. We got to solve this within three months. We increased our sign up to activation rate a thousand percent. So, thousand wow. percent higher number of people use the product after signing up. Now, after that was our growth skyrocketed. So again, it's like, that's, that's what I'm saying is somebody who's so motivated to reach beyond what they directly can influence to figure out what's holding growth back. And so that required, in both cases, it required that investigator mindset and the data to really dig into that. And if I don't have the data that gives me the answer, I need to figure out how to instrument and put that get that data in place. And so it's data, it's testing, it's problem solving, and ultimately it's realizing what gets in the way of customers from having a great experience on the product.
1: Gotcha. This is great, Sean. I appreciate sharing this. Really, really valuable. Okay, one minute to wrap this up. What is your tool set? What are the favorite tools you you, you use to data analyzing, data gathering, collection? Any sort of like tools that stand out for you that are your favorite ones? So,
0: you know, for for the majority of the companies I worked on, it was before a lot of the data the the really effective data tracking systems were out there. So we we had to build our own systems Mm in-house and you know, and have SQL queries on top of these systems. And there was plenty of problems. Like people who took 10 visits before they signed up, if they're not in the registration database, you have no idea that it took that many visits to sign up. Fortunately, you know, over the last five, 10 years, you've seen the emergence of some really good tracking systems. And so my favorite is Amplitude because one, for early stage startups, they don't have to pay anything for it. It's free for up to 15 million user events per month. And so by the time you have 15 million user events, you can afford to pay what they're going to charge. And so, um, but the benefit with that is it's literally, it's going to answer that question of how many visits did it take to convert? Then down to an individual user level tracking, it's going to tell you that this person visited this many times before they converted. Here's everything they've done in the product. And so again, I told you that's what our uh, what what Go Practice is built on is Amplitude, mostly because it's it's really easy to use, it's really powerful. And if you don't understand what's happening, you can't improve what's happening. So I would say there's only one kind of Tool I require before I get started, it is user-based tracking, and so you know there's others, mix panel, there's two or three others, but because Amplitude has such a, a valuable free version, I just that is always my recommended recommended one, and then you know something for A/B testing. So, um, Optimizely has always been a, a good one for sort of page level A/B testing. Some people can get even into product level if they wire it up right, but they. Yeah, it's pretty expensive now for Optimizely. Right. So Google Optimize has pretty powerful free version, so they're they're not a bad one to use there. But then a lot of the kind of deeper testing is going to have to be kind of home built systems for for doing kind of deeper feature testing. Maybe maybe feature flags. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's different feature flagging tools, but um, A/B testing is usually the best way to normalize everything upstream from from the tests so that you you can actually See an improvement on on, say, like adding a feature, and not just uh, it's not just because suddenly you got some new press that sent in way right. more qualified people, so an A B test is going to normalize those things, where if you just kind of before and after test, there may be factors that you're not understanding that cause the change beyond what you are
1: thinking from the test you're running. Got it, Sean. This is really great. That was it, people. We are now officially done with our first season of the show. Thank you for being with us this past year. Um, We hope you enjoyed the show and we will be working on the new season starting this month. So stay tuned for 2021 Belkin's Growth Podcast season two covering appointment setting. Have a great rest of the year and I see you all in the new year. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Belkin's Growth Podcast and found it
0: useful. Be sure to subscribe and catch upcoming episodes on iTunes and Stitcher.